John chapter 13, starting at verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash, except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. Truly, truly I say to you, a servant is no greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. This is the word of the Lord. Morning. Um, I wanted to highlight a, a little experiment we're going to try, a thing we're going to change after Easter for a season. We're going to reorder the services a little bit so that um, we can program in. I mean, it'll be obviously optional. Everything's optional now, right? You could leave this service at any time. Um, but we're going to program in basically a time where we're, we're wanting to acknowledge that we gather here to be sent out. And so what we want to do is take advantage basically of like coffee time afterwards and have some informal conversations. Just so, so what we're going to do is we're going to tighten up the service. And so services now, most churches like this church too, run like an hour, an hour 15, something like that. We're going to design something that's probably like 45 minutes, a few songs, a shorter talk. You're saying like, well, believe that when we see it. Um, and, uh, and then we're going to invite people invite people to stay afterwards and, and gather in small little groups to, to chat. Uh, it might be something as simple as saying, like, where do you live? Uh, well, I live in this care center or something. And, I, um, and how can we help one another live out our faith where we live? It might be, I'm, I'm going to refer to a newspaper article um, this morning in a few minutes. Uh, it might be that you have an article like that and you're talking about, you know, things that are being talked about in our world and the implications for our Christian faith. So it may also be easier for you to invite people along because it's uh, that 
stay after time. You know, I could try this right now, right? Like, okay, everybody, let's gather in small groups. And don't you hate that when you're forced to do that? Um, but if it's optional and you can participate if you like, or or you can, you know, go and and uh, have an earlier Sunday if you like, then then that would be great too. So we're going to try that. That's starting the first Sunday in May. We often try something a little different for a spring series. The um, Sunday after Easter, so the last Sunday in April, uh, Kim Perot, uh, one of the pastors at CAP Christian Community, is going to come here, um, and we're going to interview her about what's happening up there and some changes they've gone through. Uh, I did the same with them last year, and it went really, really well. So that's the Sunday after Easter, and then starting the first Sunday in May, we'll do this um, this experimental little change of order. And yeah, we'll have to work with Kids Church and everything else, and so uh, pray for us in that. Uh, these coverings, you're like, why, is, why have people been folding their laundry and hanging it up to dry in our midst? And it's all purple. This is because we have an Anglican church that meets in this space before we meet. And uh, they, the, the two weeks before Easter, so this Sunday and then next Sunday, which is Palm Sunday, they call Passion Tide in, that, in the calendar of the Christian church. And one of the things that marks it is, uh, we were talking about this in our home group on Tuesday night, is there's multiple times like this, but one of the times where they tried to kill Jesus and it, it didn't happen uh, was when the story's terrible name, the woman caught in adultery, and Jesus does not condemn her and sends all these other people away who wanted to kill her. Um, and then it says that they, they wanted to kill Jesus and he hid, he hid away. Um, this marks that because we're covering up, the Anglican church is covering up the symbols. So you've got the cross. Uh, when they have the cross that they process in as well, that's covered up. And so you know why that is there. All right, so John 13. I, it's perfect to think about Jesus hiding himself away. You'll know this, those who've been part of this church for any period of time and if you remember these kinds of things I forget a lot of stuff like this but um, I start to get kind of there's spiritually withdrawn a little bit as we move towards Easter I think even if I'm not like really digging deep spiritually I become aware I think by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus is doing something that none of us can contribute to and, again, some of you would celebrate this and say, well, it should have some kind of an impact, shouldn't it? And I think, it, there's really no words to say. Like, no matter what I say, if it's good or not good, or it, to some degree it doesn't matter because Jesus is headed to the cross. And I can't add a thing to that. Nothing. Something happened in my life in Lent this year. This season, you often give something up and you know to add to your spiritual practice. Um, it's a bit of a confession, but I, I'm not saying it like you should judge me for it. You can you judge me for all kinds of things. It might be this, but whatever. Um, I read my Bible a lot, like every day, since I was a teenager. Read my Bible every day. I now have this like app. That's how it works now, right? where I read um, a psalm and a portion of the Old Testament, a portion of the New Testament every morning, sometimes also at night, read parts of Scripture. Interestingly, something interesting has happened in, in my life at various times, and this is not, this hasn't been like a discipline, but 
I have not, there's been days in the past few weeks where I've just not read scripture. Um, and I pray, oh, I should really go read right now. Now, if you have a discipline, you have to, some of you are like, yeah, good, me either. I'm like, I'm not celebrating with you that, that thing. You learn about a discipline if you've actually taken it up for some kind of time, and then you can release it, and you can learn from that absence. And there's been days where I haven't read Scripture, where I've prayed to my Lord Jesus Christ, and what has struck on my heart is a sense of, Todd, I am accomplishing what I am accomplishing. You can't add to it. It's okay. Now, as a pastor, I can't get away from it either. But this posture, and most of you probably need to read the Bible more, not less, so don't think I'm telling you. But this posture of Lord Jesus Christ, you are doing something. Until now, John 13, this text, which whatever words I say about it, I can't add anything to it. You must read it and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you what God is doing. Until now, Jesus has been a strong performer of miracles. He's had these arguments with religious leaders. We spoke about some of them over the past weeks. This text takes place after the triumphal entry, which we'll mark next week, which for me and my Christian spirituality is one of the worst days, the Palm Sunday. You know, the noise and the welcoming Jesus to the city. For those of us who are Christians at times, you re- well, Jesus wept on that day, right? He wept. And his weeping was, you don't get it. Oh, Jerusalem. And our empty praise at times. And not that all that praise was intended to be empty. But Jesus was headed towards the cross and they were trying to crown a victorious Messiah. Kind of victory that they didn't have in mind. This takes place after that where Jesus is withdrawing more and more spiritually. He performs fewer and fewer miracles as he gets towards the cross. And he is... He refuses the superstar status that we still, still want to put on the most effective people, the most effective leaders. Boy, isn't that one impressive. And we still want to turn even Jesus into that. He performs fewer and fewer miracles. He attracts smaller and smaller crowds until he attracts no crowds. And then he gathers with this very small group of people who follow him and know he knows something, but they don't quite get what he's about. They just know he's about something. Knowing that his hour had come. See, read scripture, please. I have the fewest notes this morning. That's the dangerous thing. Those can turn into the longest sermons, but I'll really try. Because when you get to something like knowing that his hour had come, do you have the courage to stop there? What if you knew that your hour had come? It will. For every one of us, 
And what would you, if you were to leave this world as we know it, and you weren't, wouldn't be here next week, and we were going to gather and we were going to say, oh my God, I can't believe it. It's just with me. If you knew that your hour had come, what would you want us to know? What would you want your loved ones to know? Jesus knew that his hour had come. And this is what he did. And it's astounding, the words, having loved them, his followers. The ESV says he loved them to the end. It's beautiful language. Some other translations say he loved them to the utmost. It's a word that he loved them to the end of love. How does this matter to you? What about you? Have you truly humbled yourself before the people that you love? Have you given yourself away? Or do you think your role is to help them in power? What would it mean for you to give yourself away to the ones you love and maybe to this whole world? To go to the end of love that you would become, now this is countercultural. <laughs> that you would become less, not more. Jesus got up from the table. This is... He got up from the table. And he took off his outer garment. And he tied a towel around his waist. And if you're watching this and you were there, you'd be like, no, no. I have a feeling of about what's, what's about to happen, and this can't be happening. He put a towel around his waist, and then he poured water into a basin. And all those disciples, they weren't like emotional, probably like I am now, because they didn't know he was about to die. They still didn't get that. But we can be, because we can be, oh my Lord, what are you doing? They were just offended by his condescension. I don't mean that he was condescending to them. I mean that he humiliated himself. And when someone that you think should be an impressive leader humiliates themselves or doesn't look great, you say, well, that shouldn't be. And he was about to, as they knew, he was about to maybe take on the job of a slave. See, the people then, and can feel this, because you've just been in Nepal. Those of you who've been in places that are dustier and dirtier than here, you know something that's on your mind a lot are your feet. Uh, because your feet can get extremely dirty and dry and dusty. And there in this culture, it was always the way it was. And if you gathered into a place, you would take off your sandals. Or we have some in our in our world still, you take off your shoes when you enter somewhere. And there, you come in, take off your sandals, you have these terribly dirty feet. And who would clean them? The lowest of the low. Can you hear this in the Holy Spirit? 
Like, what, what do you want me to do for you? Something impressive? He washed his disciples' feet. That's what I'm offering you. That's, he told us after he did this, I've done this, now you go do the same. That's what I have to offer you. A call. Go out into this world. It's great you come here. But go out into this world and love people with a love like this. In the end, when he showed them the utmost love that he could show them, it was the opposite of impressive in the eyes of the world. There's part of us, part of me, that just says we just ought to be quiet before this. But since I'm a preacher, I have to find something to say about it. And there's lots to say about it. But it's easy to say who impresses us in the eyes of the world. Who do you think is impressive? Who gets accolades? It's not entirely untrue that people who are sacrificial, they can be really recognized. But for the most part, they go unrecognized because you can't be famous just washing somebody's feet. I mean, now you could just be a celebrity and just be famous for literally being famous. It's fantastic. It's like this greatest spiritual lesson. What's that person done? Nothing. They're just famous for being famous. Or you invent something or make something or gain some power, right? There's an article, just column, just this morning in the New York Times, David Brooks. He's more of a conservative columnist in the Times. But he is not, I don't think he's thinking about Jesus washing his disciples' feet. He'd certainly know the text. But he's, and there's a lot of Christian references in this, in this column. Um, Annie Dillard and others, I think Thomas Merton maybe. But he talks about how, he says, in life, you know, many people go through kind of two mountains. And the first mountain is you're trying to build your life up. You're trying to gain a career and identity. Maybe you can get into a good school. We've seen the scandal recently in the United States, which has been Canadian as well. So the first mountain is you try to gain things and be impressive that way, right? And people might look up to you, and you might have more money and whatever else. And that's, He said, but very often, people either through some disenchantment of that in their lives or through suffering or loss, maybe some terrible, tragic loss, or failure, or scandal, or whatever it is, they realize that that mountain can't quite do it, and they start to climb a second one of spiritual growth and peace. In the article, he talks about, I'll find it, a young worker at a hospital um, named Luke. And this was just one of these... um, not that impressive people, the kind of people you can walk by. You do walk by them all the time. Uh, He says, in their book, Practical Wisdom, Barry Schwartz and Ken Sharp tell the story of a hospital janitor named Luke. Hospital janitor. In Luke's hospital, there was a young man who'd gotten into a fight, and he was now in a permanent coma. So he'd be in ICU or something similar, I suppose. The young man's father would come and sit with him every day in silent vigil. And he'd sit so long in silent vigil that Luke would, be, would clean the room while the father sat there. 
But one day the father went out for a smoke, and it was at that point that Luke cleaned the room. Later that afternoon, the father found Luke and snapped at him for not cleaning the room. He didn't see it happen. The first mountain response, when we describe those two things, is to see your job as cleaning rooms. And Luke could have snapped back, I did clean the room, you were out smoking. The second mountain response, do you hear Jesus washing his disciples' feet here? is to see your job as serving patients and their families. And in that case, you'd go back and clean the room again so that the Father could see and have the comfort of seeing you do it. And that's what Luke did. People still can see these kinds of examples. Jesus asks us questions. Who do you say that I am? He says to Peter. This is at a time when the crowds were stopped. They weren't following him so much anymore. He was talking about his body and his blood and giving his life. And that doesn't impress people. Disturbs them. They stop following him. Who do you say that I am? Who was a neighbor to this person? Jesus asked all these questions. He asked this question right over our culture. You could put this over North Vancouver, the whole North Shore. Jesus asks his followers. Who is greater? The one at the table or the one who serves? Give me your answer. I think I know what it is. Who is greater? The one who sits at the table or the one who serves? The Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life. He laid down his life. Having loved them, he loved them to the end. The other way still makes a lot of sense to us. It's still, here's what we kind of do. We pick up this self-sacrificial thing as like a nice, lovely virtue in the midst of building a good life. So we still kind of value the worldly building of Alive, and isn't it nice that they're kind of nice about it and they love people? The idea that we would actually become less instead of more is still offensive to us in, in some ways. It still doesn't work in this world. With this act, Jesus washing his disciples' feet, it's key. With this act, everything changes. You know how you've, some of you have experienced this in life? It might be a loss. It might be you get a job that changes everything. You have a minute. It might be an accident, something, right? You have this moment or incident or event when everything changes. And from now on, it's like after that. This, to a large degree, is one of those times. Since Jesus washed his disciples' feet, nothing's the same. Unless we ignore this. So he gets to Peter. And Peter, we love Peter so much because of his you know he just ah. and Peter refuses at first don't wash my feet why would he do that he still you can't humble yourself like this in front of me and then when Jesus kind of explains it to him he says then not just my feet but my whole body my head my hands 
as if the washing, the actual washing was the thing that made a difference. And Jesus is like, no, you don't understand. Now you don't understand in a different way. I only have to wash your feet. You only have to encounter my love like this. It's not that there's some magic thing that's happened with this washing. It is that you have seen my love and the nature of it. He laid down his life. It was never about that program or that system. It was always about him. And he laid down his life. We're told that there is revelation in this. Jesus reveals that the height of his identity, this is incredible, is becoming less. And then he says to us, since you have seen me do this, now you go do the same. And now the smallest things Nothing can, be different. Nothing can be the same after this. So when you go out, everyone who claims to be a follower of Jesus Christ, every time you encounter someone who in this culture is defined as less than, you should have this story in your mind, this event in your mind. Nobody is less than. Nobody who's serving you particularly. Nobody who's unimpressive in the eyes of the world. You cannot look at them the same way that the world does anymore. It's imp- you can only do it if you refuse to see what Jesus Christ has done. There's a vulnerability in this. Verses 13 to 15. Jesus knows that we'll be thinking about all these things and that they are. We want Him to be Lord over all. Jesus is Lord over the North Shore, right? He is, of course. But wouldn't it be greater if that was a little bit more impressive? So he says to them, they're thinking about lords and masters and people that are worth following. And he knows that's in their mind, so he says, you call me lord and master. And you're right. You call me teacher. And that's who I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. You must also do this. This for us is the question. I can't force you to ask it. I can't. But you will not get at this question by looking for more impressiveness by looking for more of that first mountain stuff. You can't get there that way. The question is, what does it mean that he laid down his life? And what does that look like for you? If I could help you ask that question, then I'd feel it's worth it. No other measurements. If I could simply ask you, help you ask the question. I don't, and it doesn't matter how many people. If you, can, if you can ask this and help three other people, one other person in your life ask the same question, then you're following your Lord. What does it mean that he laid down his life for you? And what does it mean that he told you to do the same?
come, Holy Spirit. I want to try something now, trusting in the presence of the Holy Spirit. Most of you have been in church enough to know the words around communion, the breaking of the bread, the giving of the cup. I'm not even going to say them this morning. We have communion every week during Lent. I'm simply going to ask that you ask the Holy Spirit as you receive. Lord Jesus, what does it mean that you've laid down your life? So silently now, ushers come forward and we'll